0: Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Katika Roy. Katika is a gender economist and the CEO and founder of Pipeline, an award winning software as a service company that leverages artificial intelligence to identify and drive economic gains through gender equity. Pipeline launched the first gender equity app on Salesforce's AppExchange. The pipeline platform was named one of Time Magazine's Best Inventions of 2019 and Fast Company's 2020 World's Most Innovative Companies. Katika was named the 2020 Colorado Entrepreneur of the Year. In 2017, Katika was named a luminary by the Colorado Technology Association in 2018, a Colorado Governor's Fellow, in 2019, a Top 25 Most Powerful Woman in Business and a Stevie Entrepreneur of the Year Gold Award. She is also an industry entrepreneur, thought leader and frequent editorial contributor and speaker. Katika's articles have been published by the World Economic Forum, NBC, Fast Company, Fortune and the Financial Times. In 2020, her articles garnered over 1 billion impressions. In this podcast interview, we talk about the gender equity gap. Katika talks to us about her company's mission and how the pipeline platform is helping to close the gender equity gap. We talk about the pandemic and the impact on women, female founders, and how we solve the investment allocation problem for female entrepreneurs. We talk about how crucial women investors are in this process, And how do we encourage more women to invest in female-led innovation? Katika shares what she's excited about in the world of investing in 2021. And I finish up by asking Katika to talk to us about what needs to change in order to close the gender equity gap, not just in this lifetime, but by 2030. Katika is a real inspiration. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Katika, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: So I'd love it if you could share the moment that you realized there was a gender equity gap and that you had to do something about it. And why do you personally care so much about solving this problem?
1: The moment that I realized there was a gender equity gap in the workplace was actually after I had my daughter, I came back from maternity leave. And while I was on maternity leave, my boss was optimized, which is a fancy word for fired. And so they decided to sort of move the deck chairs, if you will, on the leadership team. And and the day after I came back from maternity leave, I was asked to take on one additional team And then two weeks later, I was asked to take on another team, which meant I had three teams I was managing, which is great because at the time, and still today, I'm a breadwinner mom for a family of four. My husband is a stay-at-home dad. And so it was a great opportunity, yet it didn't come with any differentiation in title or compensation. And so I went to my new boss in HR and said, hey, this is great. Very excited about this opportunity. How do you want to make me whole on my compensation? And they said nothing and And people asked me how I knew that I needed a gap, which was that I had three teams I was managing and received no additional compensation. My male colleague had one additional team that he was managing. he was a pay grade higher than I was, and he also received additional compensation for that team, and I didn't get anything. And so I reached out to them and nothing happened, sort of two months of back and forth. And I thought, you know, there's got to be something that makes this illegal. So I found the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. I called HR and said, this is a Lilly Ledbetter issue. Every time you pay me, the statute of implementation starts over. What do you want to do about it? And it was sort of a silence. And to their credit, they increased my level, increased my pay and gave me back pay but it was really that moment that I realized how the gender equity gap manifests in companies, right? I was doing the same job. I was actually doing more work. I had more education. I had stellar performance reviews. I just deserved the compensation. And of course, also understood very well that that compensation impacted not only my opportunities, but the opportunities of my children because the more discretionary income I had, the more opportunities that I could provide for them. That was really the moment when I thought, oh my gosh, this is really an issue and we need to do something about it. For me, why I decided that I needed to do something about it is really twofold. One is that I inherited two other teams. Both those teams had equity issues. So I inherited all the equity issues that were with those teams. So I also committed to fix those. That was one that if you reported to me, I would do everything in my power to ensure that you not only had equity of pay, but also equity of opportunity. But stepping way back in my family's history, I actually had the opportunity I had because somebody had stood up and provided opportunity for my family, which is that I'm the daughter and sister of refugees. and. When my father decided to escape from Hungary after the fall of the 1956 revolution, he walked my three eldest sisters across a minefield. They arrived to a refugee camp and President Eisenhower, less than two months into their stay in the refugee camp, sent Air Force One to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the U.S. on Christmas Day, 1956. And it was that belief that one person in a position of power could make a difference, and then my personal experience that really coupled together that I needed to do something about this broader issue. It's an incredible
0: story. For the benefit of our listeners, Katika, can you explain what the gender equity gap is and how this might manifest more generally?
1: Well, in the U.S., and we can certainly talk about globally... In the U.S., women are 57% of all college graduates, 47% of the labor base, and yet they're only 7% of Fortune 500 CEOs. So You got a 40-point gap. That's one example. Globally, women are 39% of the labor base, but they run only 18% of companies globally, right? So that's another gap that we can look at. We can also look at the pay gap. So we know that in the United States, that has actually gone backward in the last year, but women earn about 82 cents on the dollar of their male colleagues. That actually is not only an issue of fairness. In the U.S., we could increase our economy by $512 billion if we close the gender pay gap. That's actually not only about women, that's actually about growing our economy. And the gender pay gap itself, which is one component of gender equity, actually impacts the economy more broadly. So for instance, women are 57% of all college graduates, they're 67% of all student loan holders. They are twice as likely to live in poverty among people 65 and older in retirement. In the U.S., we could close the Social Security savings gap by a third if we close the gender pay gap. So this idea that the gender equity gap is only about women is actually not true. It's actually about economic growth. And right now, given where we are in the economic fallout from COVID-19, it's actually about accelerating the velocity of our economic recovery. We need to put women and people of color right at the center of that so that we can accelerate our recovery. We're going to talk about
0: female entrepreneurship and obviously the funding gap for women entrepreneurs falls into that as well. Why should organizations
1: care more than they do about closing the gender equity gap? There's two pieces of that. One is first, believing that it's a problem, and then second, believing that it's a problem worth solving. Equity is a core of every people decision in a company, right? With who you hire. Who you promote, how you pay them, who you develop, etc. And there's an opportunity for companies to move toward equity with every single decision. If we take a step back, the reason why this is a problem we're solving beyond the inherent social issue is that it's actually a massive economic opportunity. Pipeline actually started with research. We did a research study across 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And what we found was that for every 10% increase in intersectional gender equity, which is essentially gender plus race and ethnicity and age all connected together, there is a one to 2% increase in revenue. So if companies are not focusing on closing their equity gap, they're actually leaving money on the table. They're not doing right by their shareholders, let alone their employees and the larger communities. We have collected over a billion data points since our original research, and we found this again and again, that at the core of this is that the reason why companies should care about this is that it's actually a massive economic opportunity for them, and they're constricting their economic footprint by not doing this. Interestingly enough, that is even more important in an economic downturn. What we saw in 2008 is that companies that put equity at the core of their crisis management strategy actually saw an up to 50 percentage point price swing on their stock. So, those that didn't actually, their stock price fell by an average of 15%. Those that did put equity at the core actually saw an increase of their stock price by 35 points. That Is really important for the company. It's also important for their shareholders. Just to add to that, you can't solve an
0: old problem with old thinking.
1: (laughs) That's the definition of insanity doing the same thing, (laughs) expecting different results. To your point,
0: introducing diverse thinking, cognitive diversity by hiring women and paying them for the work that they're doing is a very smart thing to do for businesses. It is. Yeah. So moving on then, the the World Economic Forum estimates that it will take 257 years to close the economic gender gap globally. I mean, just shocking, right? Pipeline believes differently. Pipeline's mission is to close the gender equity gap in this lifetime once and for all, which is fantastic. Can you explain how you're doing that, Kanika?
1: I mentioned earlier that every people decision in a company, equity is at the core of that decision. So it is essentially an opportunity to move either toward equity or away from it. And when you're looking at doing that at scale, that becomes really difficult. One of the things that we have found is that there's really three core decisions that companies make across their talent each year, which is performance. So how you actually analyze the performance of your employees and their rating potential, which is how you develop future leaders in your company, and then pay. And for the average Fortune 500 company that has 60,000 employees, that's 180,000 opportunities for them to move toward equity each and every year. That is what Pipeline makes possible. For every decision that you make, we actually give you the opportunity to move toward equity. And because of that, we've actually seen, on average, our customers increase the equity in their company by 65% in the first three months on our platform. Wow. With advanced technology that we use, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, we can hardwire equity into the future of work. That is what we can do. And with that, one of the things we saw last year, which I know we'll get into, but one of the things we saw is in a matter of eight weeks, Digital acceleration actually moved forward by five years. And one of the places that companies are focusing on is HR. This is a huge opportunity for companies to massively move forward in not only digital transformation, but also equity coupled with that digital transformation. And it also is really good for them in an economic downturn. That's really what we make possible. And we make it possible for companies at scale. If you are a company that has 10,000 employees or more, or quite frankly, even if you have 500 or 1,000, it's almost impossible to ensure that all your performance ratings and your performance reviews don't have bias. We found on average that a third of all performance reviews in a company have bias, and that actually leads to lower performance ratings for women and then less opportunity to be promoted, lower pay.
0: Yep. I always found this piece of information fascinating. Women tend to underestimate their performance and their performance is also underestimated by others.
1: (laughs) That is such a key piece of understanding equity. One of the things that we tend to do in the equity conversation and historically I've done, this is sort of goes to the comment about companies who spent billions of dollars trying to fix this problem without many results is that we tend to focus on fixing women rather than fixing the system. That's one example. Women give themselves lower performance ratings, but it was really important that you pointed out that happens on the other side of the table. Another example of that is that the talk in women applying for jobs. Well, women will only apply for jobs if they have 100% of the qualifications, men only 60%. Well, that's maybe true, What is also true is that the person sitting on the other side of the table is using the same qualifications, right? We judge men based on future potential. We judge women based on past performance. We have created women's leadership programs to teach them to how to be in the corporate world, in a world that actually wasn't designed to value them. We've coached women to speak differently. All of those solutions, if you will, are focused on fixing women not fixing the system that undervalues them. And at the end of the day, the system is broken. Women are not broken. We need to fix the system. Yeah, that's such an
0: important distinction. And, and it's a change in the messaging. And it, it's wonderful that we're having this conversation. It's the system that needs fixing, not women. So the pipeline platform was named one of Time Magazine's best innovations of 2019. Katakote is amazing. Pipeline was also named to Fast Company's prestigious annual list of the world's most innovative companies for 2020. Again, phenomenal. Can you walk us through the Pipeline platform in a little bit more detail so folks can really understand how it works?
1: So the way that Pipeline works, it is essentially augmented decision-making, augmented talent management, augmented leadership, if you will. What it is, is their data, are algorithms, much like you would use Google Maps or ways to get from point A to point B. We do the very same thing, but for companies, people decisions. So what we do is we're connected to their HR technical systems. That's typically an HRIS, like a Workday or a SuccessFactors, and then an applicant tracking system. When they go to take an action in that system. We actually intercept that, run that through our algorithms. And if we see any bias, essentially any opportunity to move toward equity, we will actually provide a recommendation for that. So, for instance, if you post a job requisition, we will look for employees in your company, internal hiring, that can actually fill that position. And the reason why we focus on internal hiring versus external hiring is because the best way to attract diverse talent is to ensure that your existing diverse talent is successful, and not just in their current role, but across your company. So that's one example. Performance reviews, we've found that these are critically important, that in actual fact, you cannot close the gender pay gap by starting with pay. That's because pay is the symptom, it's not the disease. So in other words, pay is the quantitative value that you place on your talent But the actual value happens before that in performance and potential. So for instance, a lot of companies right now are somewhere in their annual performance management cycle. We use natural language processing, read through those performance reviews, call out any bias phrases, calibrate the ratings themselves. That's one example. We also provide pay recommendations, but it's really ensuring that every people decision that they're making is equitable, and if it's not, it's an opportunity for them to move toward equity.
0: Makes sense. I'd like to switch gears and talk about the pandemic. In the article that you published for the World Economic Forum, you say that in less than 12 months, the United States lost 22 years of progress towards gender pay equity, and 32 years of progress towards gender parity in the labor markets. Can you talk about what this means for women across all ethnic groups in real terms and how this is likely to affect their personal financial stability?
1: So here's what the state of affairs was just on those two metrics alone. If we're looking at gender through an economic lens and we're looking at a country or a state or globally, there are really three key factors from a labor economics perspective. One is educational attainment the second is labor force participation, and the third is wages. We've talked a little bit about educational attainment, we'll set that one aside, but we'll talk about labor force participation and wages, which is all people, but particularly in this case, women in the workforce, and then how much they're getting paid. Prior to the pandemic in the US, we could have added $789 billion to the US economy through increasing women's labor force participation. So I mentioned that women are 57% of all college graduates, yet they're 47% of the labor base. We've got a 10 point gap, right? We need to get more of those women into the workforce. That's one piece. The other piece is the gender pay gap pre-pandemic could add another $512 billion to the US economy through closing it. And then there's additional effects to that. Now you see the pandemic And all those cracks that were sitting under the surface came up to the surface, right? So we know that, for instance, this goes to the 32 years. In a matter of 12 months, we actually lost 32 years of progress of women in the workforce. That is over 2 million women left the workforce. Give you a sense of the gravity of that issue. Since 1970 in the U.S., women have added $2 trillion dollars. To the U.S. economy through their increased labor force participation. We lost not all of that progress, but almost all of it. It is an over-trillion-dollar problem, this labor force issue. It is an over-trillion-dollar issue, and it is not only an issue of fairness. Our economy is at stake if we do not solve this problem and solve it Consistently, we need short-term solutions, we need long-term solutions, but we will not recover our economy if we do not solve for the issue of bringing women back in the workforce and not only keeping them in the workforce. So we need to get back to where we were prior pandemic, but then we also need to increase more women in the workforce. That's a massive issue, particularly when you're talking about rebuilding an economy such as we've seen the fallout from the last year. Yeah, it's absolutely
0: chronic, isn't it? In the same article, Kadika, you also wrote about why metrics for diversity and inclusion, pay equality and wage levels are important. You say that applying an intersectional lens, i.e. gender plus race, ethnicity to the metrics is also critical. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: One of the things that we're really focused on is intersectional gender equity. So gender plus race and ethnicity and age. Pipeline did a research study three years ago for breadwinner moms. We were particularly interested in what the breadwinner mom pay gap was, not only in aggregate, but actually through an intersectional lens. And what we found was that as a cohort, breadwinner moms have the largest gender pay gap of any cohort of women in the U.S., which is 66 cents on the dollar. And breadwinner moms support 40% of U.S. households with children under the age of 18 in the U.S. Moms are the breadwinner. There are 16 million breadwinner moms and they support 28 million children. So this is not only about our current labor force, it's actually our future labor force. When you intersect that data, gender plus race and ethnicity, black breadwinner moms have the largest gender pay gap of any women in the U.S. It's 44 cents on the dollar and the lowest average earnings per child, which is 15,000, And they support the majority of all Black children in America, 52% of all Black children, and they have for the last 38 years. And the World Economic Forum, we can talk about some of the work that they have done, but we need to ensure that our metrics are not only lensed through gender and race and ethnicity and age and LGBTQ disability, we also need to ensure that they're intersected. One of the things that happened in 2019 was that the Business Roundtable said that the purpose of a corporation is not only profits, right? That they had a broader responsibility, sort of this shift from shareholder primacy to stakeholder capitalism that we need to take into account all of these different stakeholders, employees, customers, the community, shareholders. And by doing so, we can actually have better returns back to our shareholders, which is true. And so what the World Economic Forum did was, to actually publish essentially a guide for stakeholder capitalism. And what happened in Davos in January or the Davos Dialogues, a lot of that was virtual because of the pandemic, was that 60 companies actually committed to adopting those metrics, which is a fantastic first step. Now what we need to do is two things. One is we need to ensure that that data is intersectional gender equity. So it's not gender and race and ethnicity as separate pillars, but they're actually together because if you don't put those two together, what happens is that primarily women of color and older women lose out. We assume that everyone's getting ahead if we talk about gender, that tends not to be true. It tends to be white women. The other piece of it is we really need to also talk about not just representation, but mobility. That is, do I have equity of opportunity in moving from an individual contributor to a frontline manager to a director and all the way up the line? Because what we have found is that very first promotion, that's where the pipeline leaks. For all the talk about women as CEOs and women on boards, those gaps actually start 20, 25 years earlier. We've got to really focus on ensuring that those promotion, those opportunities within companies are actually equitable through an intersectional lens. Wow. So it really does start that early. Can you shed any more light on that, Katika?
0: Why does it start so early?
1: One of the things that we know and I can tell you one of the things that we found through our implementations is that when you've got frontline managers looking at that very first promotion, so individual contributor to frontline manager, there's a pattern matching that happens. They tend to look up to see who are the most senior leaders and they tend not to look like you and me is an anomaly if if they look like you and me. So what we are then attaching, as we talked about earlier, is we look at men's future potential, women's past performance. Well, that woman has never actually been a frontline manager. This is her first opportunity. We have seen that that's the gap that actually exists, just to stack some numbers against that. What we found is that very first promotion, men are promoted at a rate of 21% greater than women. When you intersect that gap, this is why this matters. So looking at Black women in particular, that gap actually doubles. That is that men are promoted at a rate of 42% greater than Black women. We need to be paying attention to those metrics. And the good news is that using advanced technologies such as cloud computing and artificial intelligence, we can actually catapult ourselves toward equity and solve these issues. We have the technology now to make this possible and make it possible at scale. I'd like to talk about female
0: entrepreneurship and female investors. Katika, you're a female founder, you're a caregiver, a breadwinner mom, and you have been during the pandemic, obviously. I'm quite interested to hear what that's been like for you and how has the pandemic changed the landscape for female founders in your view?
1: Yeah. I also became part of the sandwich generation last year, which is essentially the generations, about half of all what they call middle-aged folks, but anyway, 45 to 65, who are both caring for elderly parents, but also raising young children. We moved my mother to live with us in January, 2020. What we have seen is that pre-pandemic for female founders, 2019 was actually the best year of fundraising for female founders they still only made up 2.7% of all funding. And just as a point of reference, female founders as a cohort actually raised less money than one company, which is WeWork. Right. Now what we saw during the pandemic is that pattern matching, that sort of affinity bias, you know, wanting to go toward the known, essentially decelerated funding for female founders. So, we saw it backslide quite a bit. In Q3 of last year, women actually raised only 1% of all venture capital. In the year, it was 2.3%. So we backslid you know, 4 to 5%, depending on if you're rounding up or not. Uh, they had less cash on hand because women tend to raise less money than men. So their ability to actually survive the pandemic is lower because they just don't have the capital to actually make it And in the US, our PPP funding, only 5% of it actually went to female founders. $60 billion, women got 5% of that and they needed more of it. And the other flip side of that is if you look in pure metrics, What we find is that female founders are actually a better investment. We produce better returns. We produce better returns for invested capital. That matters not only for investors, so VCs, but it also matters for their LPs, right? That They work on behalf of their LPs who are actually putting money into the fund. So if investors want to provide better returns for their LPs, they need to focus on funding women there's two pieces of this female founder funding issue one is that women raise less money we can talk about some of the phenomenon that happens there but the other is that they raise it at a lower valuation and what that means is they are essentially giving up a larger portion of their company for less money that matters in a few ways one is control of their company, so the who owns the votes in the organization, you know, who gets to decide who gets paid, what the direction of the company is, et cetera. It also matters for the liquidity events that they have. So whether they're acquired or if they go public. One of the ways that we change funding for female founders is to create an ecosystem around it, right? The phenomenon of Silicon Valley is that you have entrepreneurs that are successful and put more money into that ecosystem and it grows. We need to ensure that for female founders. And by the way, more broadly, that would also close the gender wealth gap in the United States, which is at about a 38-point gap. So Donna Kanza, who is a professor at London Business School, did this research. And what she found was that female founders are more likely to be asked prevention questions versus male founders are more likely to be asked promotion questions. It is a phenomenon that is related to what we talked about in terms of women being judged based on past performance, men being judged based on future potential. And the prevention questions are focused on preventing the downside. Promotion questions are focused on how big can this get? Those are directly related to how much money female founders raise. And so right now, while it would be great to shift this responsibility, quite frankly, to VCs off of female founders, one of the things that female founders can do is learn the trigger, essentially the question stem for a prevention question, and then turn it into a promotion answer. Can you give us an example, Katika? So, and I would recommend folks to Donna, D-A-N-A, K-A-N-Z-E, look up her Harvard Business Review article. It'll give you lots of uh, detail. I want to give her kudos because she's a phenomenal ally and researcher supporting female founders. But for instance, You might say, well, like an investor might ask you like, well, how do you prevent new entrants? How are you going to actually provide a barrier of entry for new startups in this place? How are you going to hold your market share? How are you going to continue to grow your market share, et cetera? And so instead of answering that question, you can flip it into how big this market is and why it will attract new entrants, but why not only is this market big, but it's growing and why you are poised to dominate that market.
0: Right. So it's a bit like the politicians, the way that they respond to media questions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or anyone, quite frankly, who's been trained to deal with media, you know. It, but I think also there's that piece Then you know, I think often as a founder, you feel like we need the VC's money, you know, to move forward. So you want to focus on that. That's one. The second piece that we have advocated for, and we advocated for very early on in the pandemic, almost a year ago now, was for the US government. And I, I think we've seen some of this in the EU. We, it would be great to see this even more broadly. But creating a female founders fund, essentially a grant fund. So you take that gap, it was $11 billion in 2019, and then you allocate that in grants to female founders. So that solves a couple of issues. One is that it solves the funding issue, right? So they're getting equity of funding. It also solves the owning equity in your company valuation issue. Because if you do it as grants and not as loans, and obviously the government's not gonna take equity in a company, then you actually enable women to own more of their company and essentially to control more of that future liquidity event. It's sort of jumpstarting the process,
0: right? Within a system that's definitely not in women's favor, shall we say.
1: And if the market's not going to solve it, well, then historically, when markets haven't solved issues, the government has stepped in. Right. And it really pales in comparison to the over $2 trillion that has already been pumped into the U.S. economy and is a really important investment in our future recovery. The other piece of that is that, and you talked about this, the lived experience of women, we come up with solutions, Pipeline is an example of that, that are based on our lived experiences. So we're actually solving problems for at least 51% of the population, if not more, because many of those are economic opportunities for 100% of the population. So this should be an important investment in our economic recovery. Absolutely. How crucial do you think
0: women investors are in this process that we've just talked about? How do we solve the investment allocation problem? And How do we encourage more women to invest in female led
1: innovation
0: and startups?
1: So I will tell you that I am an advocate of 51% of venture partners being women. It also is important to understand that that in and of itself will not solve the female funding gap. We need to have that because we need women to have equitable representation, At the table, why do I say 51? Because women are 51% of the population. It's on par with our population. What we know from the research is that nine out of 10 people have bias. So bias is not determined by your gender. It is determined by your brain. And so women have bias too. I'm sure folks who are listening are also nodding their head. (laughs) I didn't only experience bias from men. I also experienced it from women. So we need to ensure that we're not just assuming that because of closing this gap for venture partners for women, that it's just going to obviously solve the funding gap for female founders, it won't. The data proves that that is not going to happen. However, we should have women who are 51% of venture partners. We know there's been this masculinization of money which is this idea that money and financial services and asset management is a male domain. Interestingly enough, it's true by the numbers, but it's not true by the results. I wrote an article last year for SOCAP, and what it looked at was all the different asset classes of which venture capital is one of them, and looking at the results by the gender of the asset manager. So the gender of a VC partner, the gender of a trader, et cetera. like and what we've found is that women are actually better asset managers. We actually produce better returns for our shareholders, for our investors. So that's an important piece of why we should want women, a VC, you know obviously being one asset class, to actually have equitable representation. It also is, I think an important piece of looking at charity. A lot of women contribute to charity. What if we shifted even just a portion of that, really, in investing, right? You you could actually provide returns. You may lose your money, you may not, but you have the opportunity to fuel a future economy. And then, of course, those folks, in turn, will do the same thing.
0: Yes, and, and then you have the opportunity to design and build the world you want to see, which I like to talk about a lot. And I interviewed Julia Angelis from Bailey Gifford the other week. She and her all-female fund team, they run the healthcare fund over there. They invested in Moderna back in December 2018. And as a result of that, that investment grew by 700%. And their healthcare fund outperformed their peers (laughs) by 65%, right? Which is just incredible.
1: So, you know, we we tend to say, oh, well, we want to have more female venture partners because we want to close the funding gap for women. Well, no, we should want more female venture partners because they produce better results and it's equitable, right? And here's the data. (laughs) And here's the data. And it proves it across every asset class. That's what we see again and again. I'd like to switch gears again,
0: Katika. And I'd love to know what you're excited about in the world of investing in 2021. And if you're happy to share... How do you personally invest your money in general terms?
1: Almost all of my money is invested in female-run asset funds um, that are invested in female-run companies. Fantastic. So it takes a little work, but you can do it. And that uh, is how I want to take the money that I have and put it to work. Uh, While I am building Pipeline, it matters to me in each phase of how I use capital, whether that's how I spend money or how I invest my money, where that money goes. And I do that very intentionally, also for my children as well. I'm also really excited from an investing perspective Two pieces. One is the work that the World Economic Forum has done on stakeholder capitalism and those metrics. Mm -hmm. That's really important. Also, two other pieces that are connected to that. I think we're going to see these threads. One is this addition of this human capital lens in the U.S. for SEC filings. So 10K, 10Q. Excited to see that. I would like to continue to see that pushed even further. And then the third piece that I'm excited about is that last year, Fortune actually announced a partnership with Measure Up, And what they're looking at for their Fortune 500 rankings for 2021 is including this diversity, equity, and inclusion lens. And I'm really excited that these very, very influential organizations in business are taking a stance around measuring and measuring consistently across companies, continuing to evolve that investment. I mean, honestly, it kind of circles back to the initial story I told you about my dad, right, and President Eisenhower. They are using the power, so just like President Eisenhower used the power of the presidency to give hope to 21 Hungarian refugees, of which my family were five of them, that really these large organizations like the World Economic Forum, like The SEC, like Fortune, are using their power to move this forward, and that's really, really important. And they should be recognized for that. And we should also help them to continue to further that and move it forward in service of everybody.
0: And I love Kadika that you're so mission-driven. Everything you do is to promote your mission around women, gender equity, intersectional as well, obviously, and right down to how you choose to invest. So that's phenomenal. Now, I'd like you to consider this scenario. (laughs) It is 2030. What has had to happen to close the gender equity gap?
1: We sit right now at the intersection of the fourth industrial revolution. It's something that's been talked about for the last few years, but it's really gaining momentum now in terms of actually seeing this in the market, digital acceleration. We have this opportunity over the next nine years left in this decade, till 2030, to actually catapult us toward intersectional gender equity. That means that it doesn't need to take us another decade to make up for the losses that we saw in the last year. Like, just like I talked about, you know, as this sort of microeconomic perspective, We find that our companies on average, our customers, improve their pipeline score by 65% in the first three months on the platform. We can do that at scale across the globe. We can do it in the U.S. We can do it in the U.K. We can do it in the EU. We can be examples. We can actually catapult it forward so that we're increasing women's labor force participation for developing countries we are closing that gap for women not getting education or having barriers to their economic participation. And we can make huge strides in closing the gender pay gap, which shores up globally, but also in the U.S., all different types of systems. So the social security, retirement, student loans, the gender tariff gap, The U.S. also has the opportunity, I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about policy because I think it's important at this moment, but when we talk about gender mainstreaming, which is essentially applying the gender lens to policy, one of the things that the U.S. can do, and and Vice President Biden committed to this when I interviewed him during the presidential primaries, is to actually apply the gender lens to all policy issues, including foreign policy, which also includes foreign aid we can ensure that the investments we're making in other countries actually are also furthering gender equity. And that's good for everyone. So I'm really excited. You know, I think the silver lining of last year is that all the cracks that sat under the surface from an intersectional gender equity perspective with that economic fallout and the renewed calls for racial justice really came to the surface. And now we have the opportunity to tackle them and tackle them in a brave way and actually ensure equity for everyone. And it's a massive boost to our economy and the velocity of our economic recovery.
0: If you had to list three things that are currently blocking progress, so we make these changes very quickly. There's no reason why we
1: can't. What would they be? The three blockers to progress. One is just the force of will to do it, quite honestly, and the willingness to see that it's everybody's responsibility, not just women, not just policymakers. I think that's one. The second is that we need to see more what I talked about gender mainstreaming of data. We need to see that in. The monthly jobs report in the US, in the weekly unemployment claims in the US, in the quarterly GDP reports. I'm hopeful now that we'll see that in the Federal Reserve statements that we see, and then obviously more globally, but that we'll actually see that through the lens of gender. When we don't do that and we don't use gender mainstreaming as a standard, and this is a blocker, we assume that systems are gender neutral to give you an example when the monthly jobs report comes out if unemployment is low that's good for everyone <laughs> we know that's not true right we, we know when you look at the data it's not true so we need to assume that our systems are not gender neutral but that they're gender ignorant and when they're gender ignorant they actually leave people out So one of the biggest blockers is not having a mandate or a commitment to applying the intersectional gender lens to all data that we talked about in broadcast media, in the the U.S. government, in governments more broadly. Thank you for that, Katika. There's so much to think about. I always like to
0: say, if we can design and figure out blockchain... yeah complex technology right we can figure out gender equity mm. we can close the gender equity gap we can figure out how to really accelerate and drive change so that it happens as you say in this lifetime once and for all if not sooner
1: mm-hmm.
0: if the will is there there's absolutely no reason why this can't happen very very fast
1: You know, it's interesting about that you mentioned that is blockchain is actually a tool for gender equity. I I actually wrote an article about that. So, for instance, you know, documentation and records and money from developed countries to developing countries. Blockchain is actually a really important tool for gender equity as well. So I agree with you. We figure out blockchain. We can figure out gender equity. And those two are tied together. Right. Well, that's a wonderful point to end on. We could do
0: another podcast just about that, I reckon. (laughs) Oh, we're good. (laughs) We should plan it. We should do it. But Katika, I want to say thank you for everything that you have shared today. I also want to acknowledge you because your work is vital. It's so, so important to accelerating change, to enabling gender equity in the U.S. and, and, and around the world. We need women like you to continue to do the work that you do every single day. If listeners want to find you and connect with you, if they want to find out more about Pipeline and the platform, how can they connect with you?
1: LinkedIn or Twitter is probably the easiest, and it's just Katika, K-A-T-I-C-A, Roy, R-O-Y. That's my handle on both Twitter and also on LinkedIn. If folks want to learn more about Pipeline, Certainly you can contact me, but also pipeline equity, two ease, pipelineequity.com. You know, would love to talk to you about implementing pipeline in your company. Amazing. Thanks, Kataka. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at join the purse, or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.